0: Good morning and welcome to this, our first Sabbath in the month of December. As your hearts begin to turn to the Advent season, my prayer for you is that you begin to think about the babe, the babe in the manger that makes all of this possible, the promise of incarnation that provides us hope. So from everyone here at Loma Linda University Church, from Zach, who's behind the camera, from my fearless co-host Joey, and from myself, we just want to wish you the best of the Advent season and that the presence of God be felt in your lives. And so as we get together to talk about memories and remembering, can I invite you to briefly pray with me? God, thank you so much for the gift of Jesus. And as the world itself turns its collective attention to wonder about what happened in Bethlehem, we ask that Emmanuel be born again in our hearts, Mm. that the presence of the Christ child, be a driving force for our existence and that we come to him not just with gold, frankincense, or myrrh, but with our dreams and our desires, our hopes and our fears, our wishes and our wants. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. It was 1939 and as wars and rumors of war circulated around the world, that famous American poet T.S. Eliot decides to begin and write a series of poems. Now, these are not as well known as most of Eliot's compositions, for they focus on some rather interesting characters. Eliot talks about these things called jelly cats. And as he begins to dream about a world where these jelly cats have voices and ideas and challenges and journeys, the mind of the reader begins to wonder, to wonder about an experience, an experience of change, of hope, of rebirth, uh, an experience of remembering. Now, you probably know some of Eliot's poems, not because you've read the original 1939 compilation, but because in 1979, Andrew Lloyd Webber adapted these poems and placed them to musical tunes in order to create the second longest Broadway musical. Second longest because it's been running uninterrupted since 1980. I'm, of course, referring to that creation where the protagonists break uh, the fourth wall and begin to talk with the audience about the experience of being a jelly cat or, in Webber's Voices, a cat. So Cats has to do with this journey, uh, this journey that will be bestowed upon one primary recipient. It's a journey... To a new life, a life of rebirth and change, a life where your wildest dreams, hopes, and aspirations will come true. Now, we're studying this quarter the book of Deuteronomy, and you should probably know if you don't by now that the co-protagonist of Weber's play is actually a cat named Old Deuteronomy. This cat is a wise magistrate that is respected by both humans and, yes, even dogs. And as different cats begin to come forward and present their case to old Deuteronomy, he hears the songs and the stories with curiosity and intent. And then then you have her, sullen and weary, tired, Her gray coat matted the face, the marks on her face depicting that she is now a former shell of herself, Grizabella, the once glamorous cat. I don't want to spoil the whole play for you, suffice to say that perhaps The apex of the play is when Grizabella in the second act begins to sing what is perhaps the most famous show tune of them all. It's a tune that was adapted and made, made famous by Barbara Streisand, and it's a song that is aptly entitled Memories. I want to read for you just the last stanza, in the song that uh, the famous Broadway actress Elaine Pagels masterfully unveiled when the play opened. Pagels sings as the story of Grizabella begins to be understood by all these different actors who have, until that moment, shunned her. Touch me, she says. It's so easy to leave me all alone with my memory. Of my days in the sun, if you touch me, you'll understand what happiness is. Look, a new day has begun. And what strikes me about that particular interpretation of the song is what happens in the background. If you've ever had a chance to watch the play, you might have noticed that at the beginning of the act, as Grizabella walks furtively onto the stage, all the other cats except old Deuteronomy look away. They're disgusted by her. They're remind, her presence is a constant reminder of a life that is now descended into chaos, a life that is now a former shell, a life that is now spent, a life that is tired. And so as the different cats and the different actors are confronted with the painful reminder that everything loses its luster, they shun the former glamorous cat until she sings that last verse, that four verse in the song, Touch Me. And it's almost as if Isabella is asking, imploring those on the stage to reach out and bridge the divide that separates her from them in order to allow her to remember. Remember that the night comes to a close and the sun, the sun shines again. As I was thinking about this week's lesson and I was thinking about our world and the descriptions and the much heralded demise of Christianity and the Christian faith, I could almost see it. I could almost see churches half empty, decrepit buildings, cathedrals that are now being used as skate parks people who call themselves Christians and don't have the faintest idea of what scripture says, the Bible being weaponized and used as a tool to divide in the former glory and the promise of the gospel, the promise of the book being forgotten. We look at these old cathedrals and these churches, we look at our past, we look at the sometimes Pollyanish view that the early church had about who God was, and it almost looks like it's lost its lustre. We can almost picture the protagonist of the divine story leaping onto to the scene, singing about memories, imploring those around him, those that shun him. Or that only pay attention to him to point out how archaic the belief system has become. To touch him. To touch him because in that connection with him is the promise. The promise that the night will end and the sun, the sun will shine again. We've said throughout the quarter that Deuteronomy is a sermon and that it's a sermon that transcends times and places. We've talked about the fact that in its current form, Deuteronomy was probably widely read at some point during the return from exile. And I can almost picture Those Jews that are coming back to Jerusalem, full of hope and aspiration, hoping that by reconnecting to Scripture, they can find that former glamour and maybe and just maybe inhabit a new story with a different type of beginning and maybe a happier ending. Like Grizabella, they prance around the remains of the once glorious temple. They look at the images and they thumb the pages of scripture. They plead with God, with old Deuteronomy, to once again use them as chosen people, holy nations. And what is God's response? God's response is to sing a haunting solo. A solo that implores us to remember. So what is it that God is calling us to remember? Well, I want to explore briefly with you this morning two sections in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Now, if you have your, your Bible, as we do every Sabbath, I'd invite you to open it with me to the fourth chapter of Deuteronomy. Now, we're going to shift a bit as we thumb and look through the chapter, and we want to start with verse 9. Listen to the words of Yahweh. Only, he says, be careful. Be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. So the first invitation that the author of Deuteronomy is attempting to make, the invitation that he is trying to share with his people as they hear this sermon, an invitation that is coming directly from the throne of God, is to not forget. And the best way not to forget is to repeat one another's stories. But in order to share one's stories, there needs to be some groundwork that is first done. I think about the world we live in today. And I want to ask you because as I was reading Deuteronomy 4, the thought came to me and it weighed down on me like, a ton of proverbial bricks. When's the last time I shared my story with someone with whom I disagreed? When is the last time I used my story not in order to leverage position or privilege or to get my point across? When is the last time I didn't weaponize my story in order to to provide the knockout punch in the middle of an argument, when is the last time I used my story to connect? Ashamed, I realized that I hadn't done that in a while. And mainly because those who agree with me and those whom I love have already heard my story. And those who disagree with me, those whom I don't trust, only hear my story when I am trying to prove a point. Notice that in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9, the invitation is not to share and to remember in order to prove a theological point. No mention is made here of the Decalogue or of the importance of remaining faithful to covenant. There is no rationale, theological or otherwise, that is given to this process of sharing. The only thing that is required of the people is that they share their experience to be able And infuse some hope into the lives and hearts of their children as undoubtedly they begin to wonder well, where is God in the midst of this? Notice then that the story isn't used to divide, it's not used to solidify one's position, it's not even used to exalt one's calling or status. Rather, the the story is used as a tool of encouragement to other people who begin to wonder, where is God in all of this? It's a story that very quickly moves the foci from ourselves to the director of the play in which we are immersed. Watch yourselves closely. Do not forget the things that your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. So share your story. But notice, notice that this invitation not to forget is followed by a command. It's followed by a command that is now being uttered by God to the people of Israel to not only share their stories, but to intentionally make the process of storytelling and the reception of said tales central to the life of the community. So God asks for us to share our stories in order to encourage. Because when we do this, we begin to form trust. We open a space for other people to share their stories. The term that is used in the literature that focuses on storytelling as an exercise in communal healing is we guard space. We open up a void, much like the same void that God opens in the book of Genesis, in order to begin the playwright, we open up a space. and the space is filled by both by active speaking and by intentional listening. And as we speak and as we listen, trust begins to emerge. and if as trust begins to emerge, the community begins to bond. And as the community bonds, we become what Robert Sella, the great sociologist of religion, defines as a community of corporate memory. Much like Grizabella, then we move from the point where we simply look at the old days as those glorious days long past and brightly engage with a future that is still hope-filled. And you know, we're really good at telling our stories. How many times this week have you, have you used the phrase, in my days, things were better? And you know, we look at our stories as these ultimate examples of our exceptionalism. And God isn't asking Israel to do that, God is asking Israel to use these good memories as the launching pad for a new future. Because hope is attractional. Andrew Lloyd Webber knew that as he was writing the final scenes in this play. As Grizabella finishes this ode to hope, she extends her paw. And another of the people on this stage those actors dressed as cats that once shunned her reaches out and touches her and in that moment the audience knows the audience knows that we are getting ready for a new type of finale hope is attractional so when we share our stories bathed in trust we generate hope verse 32 ask now about the former days long before your time. From the day God created human beings on the earth, ask from one end of the heaven to the other. Has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like this ever been heard? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of the fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by signs, by wonders, by wars, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deed? Like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt, ask yourself the question, have you ever seen this before? That's the thing with stories. The more we start sharing them, the the more connections we find. And the more connections we find, the more places we encounter where touchstones between heaven and earth begin to become apparent. And so God is asking Israel to engage, as we have said, in this thoughtful exchange of stories, which is followed by intentional remembrance. Well, Why is that? It's because Moses knows, the people know, the author of Deuteronomy knows, Yahweh knows that information isn't enough, particularly when you're trying to navigate a crisis. Lawrence Gonzalez, the author and survivalist, presents a Case in point, Gonzalez writes about the differences that exist between people who survive and people who perish in moments of crisis, and Gonzalez notes that the ability for survival is not contingent on the information that one possesses. Because he understands that something physiological physiological happens when you and I are engaged in crisis. So this is my attempt at engaging in some amateurish neuroscience. We all have a prefrontal cortex. And in this prefrontal lobe, we have what neurobiologists call the evolved brain. You know, this is the part of our brain that is engaged with impulse control, decision-making, and rationality. But Gonzalez notes that when we are in a crisis, this part of our brain is hijacked. Hijacked by two other parts that exist in this wonderful creation that God has ordained. And those two parts are the amygdala. The amygdala is the part of the brain that is engaged in response to fear and flight or fight. So the amygdala is the one that makes all these physiological changes occur in your body as your heart begins to beat faster, pumping more blood into you, as your pupils become dilated, as your muscle tone changes, as you begin to prepare yourself for some decisions. Neurobiologists and neuroscientists call this the amygdala hijacking. You're no longer thinking straight and the amygdala then connects and sends a synaptic response to those places in your brain that are responsible for as we know it the reptilian brain the basal ganglia and it is this part of the brain that is engaged in the most rudimentary movement and once those two are controlled you act And think about all the things that you do without employing your frontal cortex. It would be painful to use logic in order to make the most basic decisions. Often when we have an amygdala hijacking and our basal ganglia is operating, we are, as most neurobiologists note, on autopilot. But when there is a crisis, all the information that occurs and that is stored in our prefrontal cortex is forgotten. As your brain is hijacked by both the basal ganglia and the amygdala. And so, the idea is this. When that happens, Those processes are driven by memory. One often asks, why do people engage in extremely dangerous activities that can cost them their lives? Well, it's because there has been a somatic bookmark in our brains a memory, if you will, that the experience is somehow pleasant. Let's face it, when your brain is hijacked by your amygdala and your basal ganglia, you feel more alive, don't you? And so memory allows this process sometimes to forge and to become this autopilot It's devoid of reason. It becomes our default response. Memory is extremely important in determining how one deals with crisis. Well, before Gonzalez or neuroscience or the understanding of what happens physiologically when our bodies are under stress, God tells the people of Israel, remember, remember. Remember what I have done, because when the moment comes, I want your default position in crisis to be hope and not despair. And that's the purpose of telling stories. And the purpose of telling stories is to create a communal somatic bookmark, a communal memory, if you will, that will allow us to respond to situations of crisis with hope and so we don't just tell stories in order to prove a point theologically we don't tell stories in order to heighten our status as the chosen and elect people. We tell stories corporately because when crisis comes, we're going to need memories to access that can drive our default reactions. And God wants those default reactions to be faith and hope. And so my friend, as we think about remembering, remembering all the great things, that God has done, both with his people and in your life, can I invite you to do something? Can I invite you to share your story boldly? And as you share boldly, can you, as Grizabella, dare to extend your arm out and say, here is my story, here is my song, ready to touch and interact with your story? And in that way, perhaps, perhaps we can become communities of memory with a default position of hope. Joey, remember, um, this is what the lesson is talking about. It's pushing us to consider this idea of memory because the people of Israel, God knows, are going to forget. And so at the outset, he, God is attempting to have them create this collective memory that will sustain them.
1: Yeah, so powerful. I love how you began this with Andrew Lloyd Webber and cats. Uh, we have a shared like. I don't know if it's love for for musicals, and there's just something powerful about song, right? Mm-hmm. Um, songs. We just had the Heritage Singers concert mm. at our church, and wasn't that wasn't that incredible? It was yeah. such an incredible experience. Yeah. yeah. Well,
0: I I, I know Joey. It's it's something happens when you sing, and I know you and I uh, share a like for music, and I think that that like has to do with our limited talent for it. <laughs> uh, my wife uh, shares a love for music because Linda is much more talented musically than than I am, and so she's the one that actually got me into into musicals and in both weber's uh cats or the phantom of the opera any other uh musical that that he put up on on broadway or something with the heritage singers um there's something that happens i remember watching i had to stay with kai at home and uh, watching through the live stream and, and mm-hmm. texting with linda who is here live in, in the crowd with with micah and when the song of hope mm. about the second coming mm. and that morning came, mm. I don't think there was a dry eye in no. the house.
1: No.
0: I know there wasn't a dry eye in my house. <laughs> and that's just because we thought about, yeah. we all thought about Max yeah. and, and Max's ministry and what that made. And in that moment without knowing Max that well or for some people, without knowing Max at all, we somehow were able to connect with something deeper and more transcendent yeah. and I think that's what you're talking about this yeah. this power that both music and story has mm-hmm. to connect us with something transcendent within us yeah
1: yeah so I, I was wondering as I was thinking about the power of stories and how you know Moses, emphasizes the importance of telling stories and remembering stories as a way of not forgetting the past and being disconnected, why do stories, why does song have such power and influence over us? How does it guide us so powerfully? I think part of it you alluded to with, with how it creates Bookmarks in our, uh, in our instincts, in our um, amygdala, and in our uh, basal ganglia, and, and the patterns that that repeat themselves without us even thinking about them. But w- how how do they have such influence over us? These these songs and these stories. Yeah, I think it's because
0: they're universal. Hmm. Um, so I think that's the first thing. They're a common experience that yeah. human beings have, and they've always had. Yeah. So you see the first recorded writings that we have of humankind weren't Mm. these treatises on law or these theological propositions or these doctrinal statements. Mm. The first thing that we did was we created stories. And the second thing that we did was we created tools. Mm. And along all the tools that we created to cultivate the earth and to protect ourselves, we also created instruments to make rudimentary music. Mm. And so it's these, it's these universal experiences. And I think it's because it by the way, I think you and I are, are very much fans of our prefrontal lobe. Yeah. I think we we love reason. Yeah. But there's sometimes sometimes something is needed to bypass that and connect with something deeper and more universal. Wow. I think Maurice's inst- without getting into you know some of the physiological things that happen with, like we said, with your amygdala and your basal ganglia um, or your hippocampus, uh, there's something that happens by which you bypass the rationality and you just are. Mm. Uh, Gonzalez, who who writes a lot of uh, about this, talks about the frontal lobe and, and your your mem your reason as a jockey mm-hmm. and he talks about the instincts you know what happens in the amygdala and the emotions and and what happens in the basal ganglia as the horse mm-hmm. and so when those are two are working in concert um marvelous things happen mm-hmm. But let's not forget the power and the beauty and the majesty that the horse has. I mm-hmm. think that's his—that's uh, his invitation as we as we're living in the midst of a of a world that that sometimes has sold out to rationality. Mm-hmm. And there's something there's something almost primal about music, isn't there? Yeah. Where you you can't dissect it. Yeah rationally you just enjoy it experientially Mm -hmm. and it creates these emotional responses
1: yeah it speaks directly to our emotions Mm -hmm. that's so powerful you know what you're saying kind of reminds me of um, how I've heard that you know we humans like to think of ourselves as thinking beings you know I think therefore I am but in reality we are feeling beings and to just neglect the feeling aspect and think, oh, we can just rationalize our way to, to success doesn't always work. I mean, we we've, we've seen that we've experienced this all the time with, for example, dieting. Right, mm. like people know rationally, we all know that it's healthier to eat broccoli mm. and Brussels sprouts and vegetables rather than pizza or ice cream or all these other things we rationally know that this is better for us this is the path and yet many times we default to the ice cream Mm -hmm. to the to the french fries right um why because we the the feeling of those experiences is so much more powerful than the knowledge that we have the information Mm -hmm. that we have about the healthiness or Mm -hmm. healthfulness of 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 broccoli and and not to say anything about broccoli. I love broccoli. Yeah, broccoli's especially, great. Especially when it's smothered in butter and citra mm. cheese like mm. they do in like, spaghetti factory. Mm. Mm. <laughs> broccoli's great. <laughs> but but yeah, there is something primal about our emotions. And to it's not to say that we should be ruled by our emotions, but to neglect them, like you're saying, to forget to forget they exist and say, oh, we're just thinking beings. Doesn't really speak to mm-hmm. the reality of how we experience life. Yeah, there's a there's a great book
0: I think that that makes this point. It's called Descartes' Error, mm-hmm. and this idea of I think therefore I am mm-hmm. stems from from this famous phrase that Descartes uses, "Cogito ergo sum," mm-hmm. um, where he begins to question everything, and then he realizes that there is an I that is questioning, and for Descartes, that's his mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, Descartes' mistake, though, is that that mind is inhabiting a body, and that that body is full of emotive responses. Yeah. And so the the fra- the phraseology in, in Descartes' mistake uh, changes to "I am, therefore I think." There is mm. there is a me, an emotional being that is there, that is thinking. And I think often. We forget the power of emotions. There was a study done, Joey, with uh, fighter pilots. Mm. And I cannot imagine anything more dangerous and more exhilarating than flying an F-18 or an F-16 off Mm. of an aircraft carrier. Yeah it's incredible I, the level of precision and talent that one needs to have in order to land something mm-hmm. um I didn't know this until I was reading the study that actually what stops you is there's a little hook there's a little cable that the plane has to hook on on the carrier, but you can't see the, but the pilot can't see the hook or the cable itself so it's this it's this amazing concert of. Talent and preparation and equipping and experience and a lot of things are, are happening. Sometimes, though, there are accidents, as particularly mm. on upon return, mm. and that is because the pilot will become so hyper focused on the ground that he'll forget. To look at the other instrumentation around them, and often that's that's when you have an accident. Uh, so the pilot becomes hyper focused on landing on the mm-hmm. most what he thinks the most important thing is, which is the ground, that he forgets everything else. That's sometimes I think the danger with emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sometimes we, as you're saying, we become hyper-focused on the ice cream Mm -hmm. and the pleasure in this this uh, memory bookmark that's formed Mm -hmm. that we forget everything else. Um, So it's probably not ideal to allow yourself to be ruled by emotions, but conversely, emotions are a really good thing if we uh, if we pair them mm. with reason uh cuts the motto who was uh, mike tyson's trainer mm. i think talks about it in a, in a philosophical and theological way and puts it better than anyone else i've read yeah. uh, come to think about of it it cuts the motto i mean <laughs> we find that we we mine every type of of wisdom and nugget here Katz compared fear and emotion with a fire Mm. and he said emotions can warm you up they can cook for you they can illuminate you but they can also burn you up and consume Mm. you and so i think that's the importance of of striking this balance between emotion and reason and recognizing that when you are in a highly emotive state Mm. Um, as most uh, Air Force uh, pilots will tell you, when you are in this heightened state of uh, that is emotive, uh, where you've got adrenaline pumping and your amygdala is raging, um, there's a there's a joke that fighter pilots use that when you get into that cockpit, your IQ rolls back to that of an ape because you're not fully there. You're not thinking clearly and completely as a sentient being. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really important to recognize that when we're in a highly emotive state, yeah. our rationality is Probably not operating at 100%. And that's why God is trying for his people. Mm-hmm. And he's wishing that his people create these positive bookmarks mm-hmm. and these memories that are communal, that are going to drive them yeah. when the situation isn't ideal, when the crisis happens and they're in a heightened
1: state. Wow. And I don't know how, I don't know the context of that, that quote, but I can't imagine if you're a boxer, how you don't get emotional when somebody's punching you Mm -hmm. in the face, right? Like, how do you not get angry when somebody punches you in the face? And yet, if you just black out and you just go straight on to the emotion, then, then you lose control and you probably lose that, Mm -hmm. that battle. Um, You know, I've never boxed, but there have been other situations where I've gotten that almost tunnel vision. Um, that you're describing about where I'm focusing on the ground or focusing on this one thing and my emotions starting to take over that amygdala hijack is happening. Um, So then you're saying that there are ways that we can create these positive bookmarks so that when we hit those states, we don't lose complete control of our rationality. So what does that look like? How, how do stories help create those positive Mm -hmm. bookmarks so that when we get into those states, we don't get completely just ruled by instinct. Mm. So,
0: here's another uh, theologian and philosopher that you probably have not heard about, Mike Tyson. Mm. Now, Tyson has a lot of problems, and we're not going to spend our time here dissecting his life, but when they asked him what happened when he got into the ring, remember, he's trained by this guy who's trying to leverage fear. Mm. And Tyson says that what he what that he learned to like the fear, to embrace the fear, mm. to embrace the emotionality. And the question very much that reporters asked was, Well, how, how do you do that? Yeah. And he says, I resort to my training. Mm. So during Tyson's camp, what Katz D'Amato did is he would tell the story of the fight mm. to Tyson. They would they would play out not only how to throw an uppercut or a hook or a jab, but they would tell the story of the fight Mm. so that when Tyson got into the ring and got Mm. punched and Tyson has this really famous phrase that is really helpful in this. He says, everybody has a plan until you get punched. And that's when the amygdala hijack happens. So how do you how do you harness the emotion and then bring the jockey of reason in to, to try to guide it. Well, Tyson says, it's uh, you resort to to, me, to your training. Mm-hmm. Much like the F-16 or F-18 pilots, mm-hmm. do you resort to your training? Mm-hmm. Um, and so in Tyson's case, that training was, let me tell the story. Let me go back to the story of the fight. In the case of the fighter pilot, uh, pilots it's you'll you'll go to a briefing right before you take off and the briefing isn't going to go through the complex data or the physics or the engineering that is going to get this this mega piece of machinery up in the air and back down into a airplane carrier It's just these brief things that you have learned about takeoff mm. and about, landing that are repeated in that briefing as fighter pilots are getting ready to take off. And so what both what both boxers and fighter pilots do is they resort to their training. Mm-hmm. And here God is asking the people of God to resort to their training. Yeah. And their training is deeply linked to the stories of God that we tell each other. Mm-hmm. And so the question then, Joey, that I would have, For you and for for the rest of our friends out there is, when you hit the moment of crisis Mm. that demands a memory, when you need to resort to your training, what kind of stories Mm. of and what kind of pictures of God have you been telling yours have have you been sharing with yourself and with others that are that uh, that are going to kind of create these default positions that you now need to resort to.
1: Wow. That's a good question. You know, I love that quote. Um, everybody has a plan until someone punches you in the face, and then that plan goes out the, out the window. There's another quote um, from, that Navy SEALs have that uh, talk about what what you're saying, that people don't rise to the level of their expectations, they fall to the level of their training, mm. right? And you're saying that we can train ourselves for these amygdala hijack moments these emotional moments to respond well in these moments by walking through the story right that like the stories that and not just just logically but also the emotional emotionality of those stories which leads me to i mean you asked the question what stories are we telling ourselves man a lot of times the stories that we tell ourselves are stories that we watch on TV or on Netflix or um, YouTube videos Mm -hmm. or, and they they do, they do train us because those stories are full of emotions. I mean, they know, I mean, Hollywood knows how to use and manipulate and to create our emotions. So it's very, it would be very easy to, in that emotional moment, default to what are the, how do the people in those stories respond in those moments? And and to to have those bookmarks lead mm-hmm. us through it would it'd be it'd be so easy for that to happen. I, I remember when I was taking a youth ministry class at Andrews, they um, they showed us a documentary called "Playing It Up for the Cameras." And what what they said they found was that whenever you went into a nightclub with a camera, whenever the camera went on someone they would start to dance more suggestively. Mm. It was like this instinct that, oh, this is what I'm supposed to Mm -hmm. do when I'm on camera. And then it would create the documentary we talk about. It would create this feedback loop of them, um, of other people watching people Mm. dance like that. And then that becomes their default. And even without us even logically, because if we logically thought about it, it would be, why am I changing the way I Mm. dance? just because a camera is on me and yet because we're emotional beings that those bookmarks have have changed the way that we practice even the way we dance oh my that is so mind-blowing folks
0: and just let's follow that to its to its ultimate implications joey uh so victorian society believed particularly uh, Because of this idea of the Protestant work ethic Mm. believed that if you worked hard and made good choices Good things were going to happen to you. Mm. That's the story that was told right Mm. much like Hollywood tells stories today Mm. And because this is the story that they told themselves they created societies that had a society that had no real patience for failure Mm. Um, and so Addiction, which, for example, now we, we see as a disease, was seen as a moral failure. Poverty mm. was seen as a moral failure. Uh, there were no questions asked about what got you into this place. Mm. Um, disease itself was seen was seen as a, as a moral failure. And so the question was, what are you doing to cause these ser- this series of mm. just calamities to befall uh, to befall you? And just think about what that does to our picture of God. Because immediately, if I were poor or I was struggling with a, with an illness or with a disease or with a situation that was that was bad, and I was living in Victorian, uh, in the middle of Victorian society, I would say, "Well, you know, God's getting even with me. I need to ask for forgiveness." And that's completely counter. Like rationally, these are people who believe that we were saved by grace and grace alone.
1: Yet. Mm
0: when the crisis came they resorted to the stories they told each other and they said no it's your fault god no. is getting even it's yes. it's it's your relationship with god is a transactional one and so while they did have the logical rational knowledge of this idea of in this concept of grace mm. their emotive response to crisis caused them to interject a completely contrary set of beliefs mm because they um that's that's what what fit mm. uh, with their with their particular uh, idea of how the world worked. Wow so the stories we tell ourselves
1: I think as as you're pointing out is extre- are extremely important yeah. to the view to the way we view God yeah and, and that's the gut check that we talk about right mm. when when we say when we say well you know what you're saying sounds right, but there's something about it that feels, wrong right like you're you're making logical sense you're describing i mean we've we've uh, confronted this before as adventists we've confronted this with the sabbath right you can lay out to somebody um the you know it's the it's in the Ten Commandments it's it's the it's the seventh day um, we're we're pretty clear that it's the seventh day the seventh day is Saturday because the Jews have been keeping that for centuries I mean you could go through all the logical arguments and yet people will end up at the end of the logical arguments and say well that just doesn't feel right to mm-hmm. me right um, we've experienced this so many times so yeah how then how then do we change those stories and those narratives, how do we be a lot more attentive to the narratives that we're telling mm. ourselves? Because like you said, if you ask somebody in Victorian society, are we saved by grace? They would immediately have said yes. And yet the way that they practice life and practice Christianity was the complete opposite of that. So then how do we become a lot more aware of the stories we're telling mm. ourselves. How can we see that and be more conscious about those stories?
0: Yeah, you 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 open and you guard space for the sharing of those stories. This is what mm. I love about this chapter, right? God is inviting Israel to open up a space for communal storytelling. And it's a space that focuses not on theology, not on covenant, not on their position as chosen people. All those things are true and they're important. But it's, it's an experience that focuses on God's goodness and God's grace. Mm. And so the story that they're telling them is almost single-mindedly driving that point. So mm-hmm. when the crisis happens, and it will undoubtedly happen, you resort to this default position that is always driven towards grace, yeah. goodness, and long-suffering. And that's, that's I think, kind of the story that God has not only with the people of Israel, but that God has with each one of us.
1: Yeah. And, you know, that's sort of what God is saying in Deuteronomy chapter 8, a few chapters later, where he he tells them, you're going to go to this land and it's going to be a prosperous land and you're going to prosper. And it will be easy for you to tell yourselves that we got here because mm-hmm. we earned it, mm-hmm. right? Right. This is the story that you're gonna tell yourself. Remember, take time to remember that that's not what happened. The reality is you got here because God did these amazing, incredible acts, acts that he has never done for any other peoples before, he did for you to get to this Mm -hmm. place. So don't forget, Mm -hmm. don't forget.
0: And so maybe today God is inviting us, as Joey has pointed out, friends, to have a gut check moment mm. and to remember. Joey, would you close us out in prayer? Yes,
1: let's bow our heads. Good and gracious God, help us not to forget. It's so easy. It's so easy to get so obsessed with the ground, to get tunnel vision as we're living life, to that we forget that like the Israelites, all that we have, all that is good in our lives comes from you. It doesn't come from hard work or um, from our own talents and abilities, as much as those are gifts from you. It come from you. And so primarily the stories that, le- that, that should define our lives are the story of dependence on your goodness and your will. So help us to live our lives as dependent beings on you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name,
0: amen. Amen. Gut check time, my friends. And we hope that God speaks to you in order to question the stories that you've been telling yourselves and to adapt tales that focus on his goodness. We'll see you next week.